Thank you for coming to church today. Uh, like like uh, Chris mentioned, uh, Pastor Sam's gone and, and uh, about 10 or 11 other guys, so um, I get to fill in today. Uh, I am one of the pastors. My name is Mark, and uh, I know there's a few new people here today, as there usually is every Sunday. I think if all the new people that ever came every Sunday actually stayed, we'd actually fill these seats up, but for some reason, only about... I don't know what the percentage is that stay, but hey, I'm glad you, if you're new and you've actually been here more than once, welcome back. Thank you for coming. Um, today, if you're brand new, uh, you, great, you chose a great Sunday to come because we're going to be talking about sin in the church and about church discipline. I mean, how great is that? But really, we don't talk about church discipline every Sunday, so come back next Sunday. We'll talk about something really great that Pastor Chris will be, Chris will be preaching on, something like... Uh, Somebody says they're a Christian, but they're like living in sin. Don't even, don't even associate with that person, that type of sermon. So it'll be something really lighthearted. But today, we're going to be talking about sin. And so uh, we're going to go right to the text. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, first eight verses. Let me open my Bible up here. All right, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open your word to us today. Let us hear what you have to say. Uh, Comfort those who need comforting, convict those who need uh, convicting. And uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the last couple of months, we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, which Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And we now come to the fifth chapter, where Paul turns from what has been largely the mental problem, you could say, of the Corinthians to their moral problem. In the previous chapters, we heard how he had addressed the Corinthian church about several different things. He talked to them about the wisdom and the power of God. Uh, He talked to them about the ministry of the apostles and about his apostolic authority. But he also, and he spent a good bit of time talking to them about their disunity, uh, which they had expressed by developing into different groups, following different teachers. And he admonished them to all be unified in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ But what we also now, as we come to the fifth chapter, we kind of get a sense as to their 
you know, coming from their disunity, we see that they're actually unified in their uh, acceptance of someone who's a member of their church, who's engaging in a sin that is so deplorable that even the pagans around them find it to be just, like, detestable. I guess, in a sense, you could, you could view it as something like a child molester, for example. That's something that, in our culture today, if you're a child molester, it doesn't matter if you're in church or if you're outside of church, people are going to be like, that person is evil, which, in fact, they are. So, um, all the members, so, the, so, so Paul's addressing this, this guy's sin, but he's really, uh, he's, he's really also addressing the sin of this church for being approving of this sin that's in their midst. Um, so this guy was having, uh, as Paul says here, he, is, um, uh, he has his father's wife. Now, we don't know, uh, you know, is that, is, is, that his, is that his real mom or his stepmom? Probably his stepmom. Um, but he is, yes, having an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. So, I mean, yes, you know, it's, it's uh, that's bad. You know, you don't want to be doing that. Um, she, this woman, Paul doesn't really address this woman at all. He doesn't deal with her. So probably she is not even a member of the church. She's probably just one of the Corinthian, you know, Gentiles or, or non-Christians that, that live there that this man had a, this relationship with. And uh, we don't know anything about uh, this guy's father. Is he dead or is he alive? Paul doesn't say anything about him. Uh, but we know that this relationship is ongoing. It's not just, you know, a one-night stand with mother-in-law or stepmom. It was, it was ongoing because he used the word has to describe it. He has, not had, but has his father's wife. So it's something that's going on, and, and the Corinthians in that church are just, it's okay. They're, they're, but they're not, just, um, they're not just okay with it. They're actually proud of this guy. So Paul's alarmed at the sin, of course, but he's even more alarmed and really kind of really disturbed by the Corinthians' um, arrogance. And, and that's what he, um, you know, that's, that's what he really is, is talking about in this passage, is their response to it. And why wouldn't he be um, disturbed by it? After all, even, you know, go outside the church, and they were probably talking about it like, yeah, I guess there's this group of Christians, and there's a guy in there, he's, he's having this relationship with his stepmom, and I guess they're okay with it. Uh, so, so that's why Paul is really, he's, he's taking a hard stand with this church. He really is. He is, he is uh, he's not mincing words at all when he comes to this church. And he is telling them exactly what they need to do. Um, I wonder sometimes if our culture today and our world today is, is just as bad as the Corinthian culture, or maybe it's even worse. Because if it comes to this particular sin... I wonder if our culture today would find it quite as deplorable as they did back in Corinth in that day. Because you hear it all the time in our culture about these types of relationships. They, you know, like, as long as it's two consenting adults, who are we to judge? Um, as long as it's not hurting me personally or my neighbors, what, what difference does it make? Um, so it, maybe our culture's worse. I don't know. Maybe in some ways our culture's better. But another reason I think perhaps our culture's worse is I was listening to the radio the other day to Dory Monson. Sometimes I tune into him, you know, at my lunch, during the lunchtime. Not a bad guy. He's got an entertaining radio show. But he was talking about uh, this news story that was um, uh, current a couple weeks ago uh, about a woman in New York 
state, uh, whose son was turning 16 years old, so she decided to throw a big birthday party for her son, you know, sweet 16. So she gets like 80 guests. I don't know if they were all the kids' friends, but there was a lot of teenagers there. Some were as young as 13 years old. So she rents a room at a bowling alley. They probably did their bowling or whatever, and they probably ordered pizza and pop. And yes, a couple of strippers to entertain her son and her, and her son's friends, which apparently everybody thought was great. But then when pictures of this event got online through one of these friends, of course, posting, you know, they post everything online nowadays, Facebook, you know, Twitter, all that. The cops found out about it. And they, I'm sure for them, they were like, well, we got to do something because this doesn't seem right. So they, they charged the mother with child endangerment. So Dory was asking his listeners in a segment he calls, you be the jury, after he tells a story, should this woman be charged with something such as child endangerment or something else, or should she just get something like probation, you know, a slap on the wrist? Now, I was kind of interested to see what the caller's response was, because my blood was kind of boiling thinking about this mother doing this to her son, knowing how pervasive this sin is in our culture and and just what men have to struggle with in their lives and, and how sexual sin always, you know, previous sexual sin, it always seems to come in and haunt, you know, a relationship in a marriage. You know, when a guy gets married to his wife and he's got, he brings this baggage with him, perhaps establishes patterns of sexual sin in his life. And so it's like, that just, that's, you're just harming your son by doing something like that. You're not protecting your son from, from what is really harmful to a man. But as I kind of figured, the few callers that I heard, a couple of guys, are like, it's no big deal. You know, this mother shouldn't be charged with anything. I mean, our culture is so saturated with sex anyway. What difference does it make in this and that? Of course, I'm sure there's others out there that were equally, you know, disturbed by that as I was. But nonetheless, um, there, there is. There is. Our, our culture's not any better than what the Corinthians suffered with. So as Christians, we also need to be mindful of that, right? That, that we are to be different than the culture that we live in because we are a new people. We are new creations in Christ if we are Christians. So this passage really has to do with the church's response to this sin in Corinth. Now, I'm really glad that I get to be up here preaching this sermon, and and I get to say we're not having a discipline issue or a sin issue like this in our church. You know, I know some preachers have to come up and preach a sermon because they're, they're, they're dealing with this situation right now, and so they choose a passage like this, and I've heard sermons like that before, and it's very tough because they are actually having to mention someone by name and say, this person has has sinned, and they're, they're engaged in sin, they're not repenting, they've been given opportunities to repent. So here we are, we're here to essentially, as Paul says, hand them over to Satan. Discipline is a mark of, of, of a true church, church discipline. Uh, after the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, There were lots of new churches and denominations that were just coming up everywhere. Lutherans and Methodists and, you know, Presbyterians and Calvinists and this and that and the other thing. And so people were asking, well, how do I know if it's a good church or not? How do I know if it's a good church or if it's a false church? I mean, you say the Catholic church isn't good and 
And now you've got the Lutherans and you've got these guys over here. Where am I going to go, you know? And so people, over time, they develop kind of like a three-fold, uh, three marks of a true church. They said, well, if it's going to be a good church, a church that is really a church of God, you've got to find that they preach the word of God, they preach the gospel, and the gospel's front and center in that church. It's not about something else. It's not about some, something uh, man-made, but it is literally the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, That's the first thing and the most important thing. Secondly, there's got to be the, marks, the mark of, of the sacraments there. They've got to do baptism. They've got to baptize new believers. They've got to, they've got to offer the communion um, the table of the Lord. That's got to be there as well. And thirdly, they said, it has to be, to be a church, they have to have discipline. There has to be the disciplining of, of sinful, sinning, non-repentant members of the church, people who are not taking their sin seriously. They have to be disciplined according to what the Bible teaches. And we're going to look at some more passages where this, this, this teaching comes through. So those are the three marks. Now, I realize that when a pastor speaks about discipline or church discipline, there's, there's going to be some Christians or some people who are listening who are um, very uncomfortable about this subject. Um, and, and it's usually based on some past experience they've had in a church where discipline was administered incorrectly or harshly. And I get that. I really do because I have seen the rod of discipline come down on people in my previous life in another church for the first 30 years of my life. Uh, They come down for some of the craziest reasons. Now it was a really legalistic type of church with a lot of rules. Uh, And so when people weren't following the rules just right, they would be called up or called to account and and if they didn't, you know, forsake the sin, whatever the sin was, um, whether it be a television in their home or, or uh, you know, uh, they were wearing earrings if they're a woman or something like that, they could be subject to discipline. And they would use the word binding. They would, because when Jesus says that, you know, he gave the keys uh, to his disciples, he said, I gave you the keys to, of the kingdom of heaven and, and uh, whosoever sins, Ye loose on earth, they are loosed in heaven. Whosoever sins ye bind on earth are bound in heaven. So they would use the word bind. They would say that, you know, we can't loose you of your sins. Now you are bound in your sins because you refuse to repent for your sin. But, I mean, I've seen couples being bound for not giving up their television in their home. I mean, we're not going to do that. You can keep your TV, all right? Um, I've seen another guy who was a retired major from the, uh, from the uh, Marine Corps, great guy, uh, but his son, this is during a phase the church was going to where they were thinking that it wasn't good for a Christian to go into the military, but his son was wanting to join the Air Force, and, his, and he was supportive of his son, thought it would be a good thing. So they put this guy under the, under the bind as well, and it was really sad. It was, just, it was this overreaching, uh, abusive, authoritative, authoritarian type of system that is not what church discipline is, okay? Church discipline only, the church disciplines only those who are really in this type of sin like this guy was involved with. Um, So it's an uncommon experience, all right? Because as silly as those things sound, you know, putting people under discipline for, for having a television, there are those times when a church has to say, you know, the leadership of a church has to be strong and say, no, 
This cannot go on. We cannot allow this sin to continue in our church because all it's going to do is spread and have this infection that's going to make our church sick. And nobody wants to be part of a sick church. We all want to be part of a healthy, well-balanced, well-church that proclaims the name of Jesus and, and lifts him up and, and teaches him about, you know, teaches everybody about him and, and, uh, and how to be on mission for him. Um, so I thank God that in the time that we've been a church, about six years, a little over, we've, we've only had to do this one time to one of our members. And we didn't actually, it didn't fully carry out where we, you know, had, a, you know, when he was present, we, you know, hand him over to Satan or anything like that. But what happened was he was a leader of one of our bands, one of our music teams. He was here at church singing and leading worship on Sunday morning. And then some of the band members found out that he was actually having uh, a sexually immoral relationship with his girlfriend. And um, they talked to him about it. And they, they encouraged him to see what he was doing as being sinful. And they said, you've got to repent. But he refused. He said, no, no I like it. I'm not going to, you know. And so they, they came to the elders and talked to us about it. And we encouraged him to, to repent and gave him several opportunities to do that. And... Uh, but he decided that he was just going to leave. And so we didn't actually have to ask him to leave. He left on his own. But we did publicly to the church say, Michael has left. And he is no longer here because he loves his sin more than Jesus. And he loves his sin more than he loves his church. And it was a sad day. It was really, really sad for us. We didn't like to see that at all. But you know, we didn't hear from him for a couple of years. But in December, he emailed Pastor Sam, and he sent an email, and I wanted to read the email to you guys because I think it illustrates why it is important to kind of like be strong in church and say, we're not going to allow, especially someone who's leading, we're not going to allow him to be in an immoral relationship and continue to lead God's people. We're not going to allow that in this church. And so he wrote an email, and I... I I messaged him yesterday because I like, can I please, can I read your email to the church? And he, he messaged me back and said, absolutely. He goes, you can use my name, he said. I, I don't care. He goes, whatever brings God glory. And this is what he wrote. And we were glad to read this email back in December. He said, Sam Ford, I want to take a moment to apologize for my actions against you and against Damascus Road Church. I handled that situation about as well as a two-year-old handles a tantrum. Although I got just what I wanted, a life that quickly fell apart, pushing away from the sanctity of the Lord, I found myself lifeless and in constant turmoil. By the grace of God, he lifted me from my own muck and mire that I would, could have avoided if I just would have had the ears to hear. Not only do I want to apologize, but I want to thank you. Thank you for preaching the gospel and following through with the convictions that God has given you. Through Damascus Road, God has shown me a biblical faith that, as sad as it is to say, I had not found anywhere else. Thank you. So you can imagine if it's nice to get that kind of a response. It doesn't always work that way, or sometimes maybe it takes years for, for, for God to work through whatever pain they're going through whatever suffering takes place, 
on account of being disciplined in this way by their church. The hope and the prayer is that it does lead to restoration and full um, uh, coming back into the church community. Discipline starts with you, though. It starts with me. It's an individual calling just as well as it is a more corporate calling. Individually, when we sin, we first are the ones who monitor what we're doing and what our own behavior is. And so our conscience compels us, if we still have a conscience, to repent, to confess our sin, and to be forgiven. As we compare ourselves to the Word of God, we adjust ourselves, our lives, our habits, to better conform to our Savior. But sometimes when we sin, we either don't recognize it as being sin, or we choose to ignore it because... We love it so much. And that is when someone we know, who knows me and cares about me, will come and talk to me about my sin and say, buddy, this ain't right. You need to make this right. You need to fix this. You need to repent. You need to confess this as sin. Because that is what Jesus tells us to do. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you and He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now this is is where we hope the relationship is restored and peace is returned. But in the event that it doesn't work, Jesus tells us what the next step is. He says, if he doesn't listen, take two, one or two others along with you, that every every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now hopefully this will take care of it. A sinner sees his sin, repents, everything goes back to normal. But if it doesn't go quite that well, Jesus tells us that if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We must, as a church, as a body of believers in Christ, We must care enough about one another that when we see our friend, our brother, our sister struggling with sin or falling on the way, that we would be willing to go and help, to say, I'm here. Because in in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that's where Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so not just a sin against you, but if you just see him in some transgression, He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this is one reason why it is so important for you, for me, to be a member of a church, and to be involved in gospel community. In addition to a godly spouse and godly parents, Um, it is primarily through the church that God uses. um, God uses the church to reveal to us uh, sin in our lives that we can't see ourselves. Through the faithful preaching of the Bible, we get to see ourselves in lives more clearly in the light of God's word. And if we are in sin, and we ignore the sin, and we don't heed the admonition of our friends or 
our pastors to repent. The Bible says God will discipline you because he loves you. Not because he's vindictive or punitive. He desires your love and obedience in return because of his love for you. And he knows that an obedient life is one where you are going to be blessed. He says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Let's, um, let's look for a moment at the sin that this man was involved with. Paul uses the words sexual immorality in the ESV, the translation that we use, to describe this sin. But in the King James and a few other translations, they use the word fornication, which, which is also based on the Greek word that was originally used, which is porneia. Porneia is a word that you get uh, for pornography that is used in our language today, which we all know is, is uh, impurity and uh, sexual immorality. The meaning of the word porneia uh, really means, it, it started out as meaning in the Hebrew culture as, or, or pre-Hebrew culture of Greece, I think as, as like prostitution. But it evolved at the time when Paul wrote this and the rest of the scriptures were written. It evolved to mean any kind of sexual impurity or extramarital sex, including homosexuality. The word appears over 30 times in the New Testament. And it's always at or near the top of any of the sin lists that appear in Scripture. Now, this isn't because the first Christians had a lot of hang-ups about sex and they needed to always be told they can't do this and they can't do that. But no, it was because the culture, the Greek culture that they were in, um, it really clashed with the ethics of Jesus when it came to sex. Sexual immorality was an accepted fact of life in Greek culture. Kind of like it is in our culture, I'd say. So there's, there's a real clash, I think, still with our culture and what Jesus' ethics are and what Jesus taught and what the Bible teaches about sexuality. So this type of sexual immorality was not to be part of the followers of Jesus in their lives. Now, we don't know much about this man that Paul is writing about, other than he was involved in this, this uh, illicit relationship in their church. Now, some speculate that he was uh, perhaps a real wealthy guy, and so that's one reason why the Corinthians were so willing to overlook his sin, because he tithed a lot of money, perhaps. Um, but it could also be that the woman that he was having this relationship with was 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 wealthy. Now, she wasn't part of the church, but maybe he stood to gain a lot of her wealth if he were to marry her. And so they were being real easy on him for that. Or he might have been a real connected type of guy in their culture. He might have been really uh, uh, influential uh, in politics or in business. I don't know. We don't know. But I think that he was more than just an average guy. I think that there was some real reason why the church was so willing to overlook uh, this sin, which, again, the pagans outside the church thought was deplorable. Either way, though, the Corinthians were really proud of this guy instead of 
um, mourning his sin. In fact, Paul accuses them of being arrogant when they should have been mourning instead. There was in Corinth, as there is in parts of Christianity today, this false belief that if we sin more, then grace abounds more and Christ is glorified more. So let's sin more so that grace can be, you know, this, this, this cycle. Well, uh, Paul addressed that, I think, in his letter to the Corinthians, certainly to the Romans. He says, you know, should we continue to sin more so that grace will abound more? And he says, no, absolutely not. That's not what grace is about. Certainly grace does cover sin, because we all do. We all still sin, but we don't intentionally want to sin more, because that's, just, that's convoluted, wrong-headed thinking. Now, it's easy for us as Christians to get prideful, thinking about how great we are and how bad the world is. But before you start to get too prideful, think about this. Um, when it comes to this whole um, idea of sexuality and, and the morality of all of that, um, you know, the Christians tend to adopt a lot of the world standards when it comes to, to sex, unfortunately. Um, according to a recent study that I read about, um, it came out in uh, the American Sociological Review. Muslims and Hindus are more likely than Christians or Jews to refrain from premarital sex. Did you know that? In fact, they, they, they studied um, this between 2000 and 2008, and uh, they, they, they included data from 31 different countries, and they found that 79% of Christians reported having premarital sex. So how does that make you feel, Christian? It's just not somehow, you know, we're, we're still, we're, we're like the Corinthians. We really are. But, but get this, though. Only 43% of Muslims reported having premarital sex, and only 19% of Hindus. It's outrageous. I'm glad for them, but I'm not glad for us. All right, so then in verse 3, Paul says this. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul wasn't there, but he still spoke with his apostolic authority. This is another way, I think, one reason why he was presenting himself as an apostle who has authority in the previous chapters. Because now he's dealing with this moral problem. And he's telling them, this is what you got to do. you got to act quick, and you got to act decisively. He goes, I've already put judgment on him. Now, it's never pleasant to be put under judgment. I hope none of us are ever under this type of judgment. Um, especially when we're put under God's judgment. Um, if you look back or think back to the time when we were studying the book of Judges, there was this guy named Achan who, after one of the battles that they, that they fought and they won against their enemy, he went around and he was collecting some loot. He collected gold and silver and stuff like that. And he brought it home and he hid it right under his mattress, I think. And then all of a sudden, when they went to fight the next battle, they lost. The Israelites lost really bad. And so Joshua is disturbed. And God tells him, there's sin in your camp. You've got to find out who's sinning. So they, through this process of casting lots, they find 
that it was this guy named Aiken. So they went to talk to Aiken, and he confessed. He goes, yes, I did what I knew I shouldn't have done. I took gold. I took silver. I took this beautiful coat. And Joshua said, why did you do that? Now you're going to die. And he took Aiken and his family, and they went out and they stoned him, and they, and they burned them up. That was God's judgment. Sometimes in the Bible, sin gets dealt with very quickly and very, very decisively. I thank God that none of us have ever faced that kind of judgment, and I hope we never do. God, be gracious on us, please. There's another couple that you've heard about in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. Here they are. They're, 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 they don't have to lie, but for some reason, when they sell their land, they don't have to give all the money, but they, they choose to lie about how much they give, how much they got for the land so that they can seem like they're being more generous than they really are. But it gets found out that they lied about it. And as soon as that lie gets found out, they get struck dead by God. They die instantly because of their lie. Judgment came upon them fast. So, Paul's remedy is to deal with it, and deal with it now, and deal with it quickly. He says in verse 4, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, and with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, Paul's remedy is, you need to turn him over to Satan. You need to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, Paul doesn't just include himself, just say, okay, this is what you're going to do. Tell him I'm going to... No, he says, he includes the whole Corinthian church, along with himself and with the power of the Lord Jesus. This is not something that can be done absent the gathering of the church together in the name of the Lord Jesus. And it is certainly not done without His power. Strongly, I think, this indicates that that delivering someone to Satan is more than just a banishment from church. It's more than just a censure or an excommunication. It's more than just saying, you can't have this covenant community anymore. But I think that there's something supernatural, something spiritual that's, that's going on, uh, that's taking place when you're being disciplined like this, or when a person is being disciplined. It is true that as believers, we are safe in the, in the, uh, in the hands of God. And according to John chapter 10, uh, 28 and 29, no one can, can uh, snatch them out of his hand, not even Satan. But when you're delivered to Satan like this, um, you're removed. You're removed from the protection of the caring Christian community where Christ resides, and you're put out into the world, which is ultimately run and ruled by Satan. At this point, some of you are asking, why? This seems extreme. Well, the answer is that it's a sin for a church to tolerate and condone sin blatant, open sin that it knows of and doesn't do anything about. It's being actively lived out by one of its members. The person isn't repenting. The church is responsible. Ultimately, it's the leaders of that church that are responsible. Me, Sam, Chris, Randy, Nate. 
there's also some responsibility that goes out among all of you as well. Because if you know about sin that's going on, and you choose to ignore it, we don't even know about it, that's on you. So, it is also the most loving thing that you could do as, as a church to, to do this and to discipline someone because it, it is meant for their ultimate restoration. It is meant, just as it happened with Michael, that they would see where their folly, where their sin is, and they would come back and repent. But the fact is, you wouldn't really, I don't think any of you, I certainly wouldn't want to be in a church that tolerates and condones sin. Now, think about the Roman Catholic Church for a minute. They've had some problems. They've had some issues with pedophile priests. Now, if each priest that was found guilty of abusing, sexually abusing young boys was disciplined according to what Paul is writing about here, instead of being just transferred from one parish to another and then just trying to cover it all up, which I think has happened a few times, then the Catholic Church would not have had suffered the condemnation that it has suffered, really, from the world because something that, something was going on in their church that was deplorable to the world, which was being condoned by some form of hierarchy within the church. So that's what can happen. It actually infects the church. So um, this phrase, handing over to Satan or delivering to Satan, doesn't appear much in Scripture. It only appears one other time in the New Testament. Um, And it has to do with a couple of guys who are also disciplined. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. He says to Timothy, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies I have previously made about you, and that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's about all we know about those two. Their blasphemies had earned them the same reward as this anti-hero in our passage that we've been studying today. Now when Paul says, for the destruction of the flesh, he could mean the physical flesh. He could mean the physical flesh suffering, as Job's physical flesh suffered when in the Old Testament we see this, this happen to Job, where he's kind of handed over to Satan as well, and as soon as he's handed over to Satan, the first thing that happens is he's covered from head to toe with boils, and he's in complete misery. Now, Job's case is different, though, because Job wasn't being disciplined. This was for some other purpose, that God allowed Satan to have, have this control over his life. But we see what the ultimate uh, thing that happened with, with Job, and it's what we hope with anyone who ever is handed over to Satan like this, is that Job repented in chapter 42. We see that he repents in dust and ashes. So our hope is that Hymenaeus and Alexander repented before you know, their, their lives ended. But you know, it could also mean something else. Other than the physical flesh, meaning, you know, just our bodies suffering, it could mean our physical, or our, uh, it could mean the uh, sinful, rebellious nature. You know, that flesh. Um, 
By handing this guy over to Satan, the man would be given over to the sinful consequences of his flesh. And the hope is that by wallowing in the results of his sin, the sinful impulse of the flesh in this particular area will be destroyed. And then as a result of his suffering, he will no longer love his sin more than Christ, and he'll be moved toward repentance. Regardless, the purpose of church discipline is always so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's so that personal wake up and, and repent. Hope is always that the sinner would see the folly of his rebellion and repent, just as Job did. The fact is that sometimes God actually uses Satan to sanctify us or to mature us, as he did with Job. Consider the thorn that Paul himself had in his flesh. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul writes about that thorn, and he said that so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So this, this thorn, we don't know what it is, because he never tells us what it is, but it's something that continually, continually like bothered him, kind of like a if he actually had a, a thorn in his side, uh, would continue to bother you. And, of course, you know, Christ, when he prayed for it to be removed, Christ said, you know, my, my grace is sufficient. Lean on me. You know, it's not up to you, it's up to me. And, uh, but that, mess, that thorn, which I'm sure Satan's intent, you know, as a messenger, uh, his intent wasn't to make Paul more humble. Paul, Satan would love to see Paul get more and more conceited to the point where he thought he was God himself. But, but God used that thorn, which was delivered by Satan, as a way to humble Paul and keep him from being conceited. So um, that, is, uh, that is what often happens with those things. Now, at the end here of our passage, Paul is talking about uh, the leaven in the Passover. In verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul uses imagery from the Jewish festival of Passover uh, to illustrate the importance of, of a church dealing with sin in their midst. Now, Passover, um, just to remind those who maybe don't remember that story, um, happened several thousand years before this was written. And it was when the children of Israel were uh, in bondage in Egypt. And Moses was called by God to go and, and try to work freedom for his people. And so each time he goes to Pharaoh to, to ask him to you know, let my people go, uh, Pharaoh's always like, no. And then God sends a plague. And then Pharaoh says, okay, go. And then he changes his mind, and then God sends another plague. And, and this goes back and forth for like nine plagues. And then before the tenth plague, which was going to be the worst plague, uh, which was going to be the death of, of every firstborn was going to take place in all the, all the homes in the land, except for those homes that would be covered under the blood of a little innocent lamb. 
So that's what they did. The Israelites were told that they needed to to take a, a spotless lamb if they wanted to not be included under the judgment of this plague. They needed to take a little lamb. They needed to kill this little lamb as a sacrifice and take its blood and put that blood on the doorposts of their homes. And so when the angel of death would fly over that city, that country, that town, that home, during the night, if there was blood on the doorpost of that home, that angel would pass over that home. And that's where the word Passover comes from. And so um, because they had to leave in the morning, they didn't have, there wasn't time for their bread to rise. That's, that's the story. And so they ate unleavened bread on the Passover, on the first Passover. It was like bread that hadn't risen. And so uh, as a memory or commemoration of that time in the life of the, of the Hebrews, um, they're commanded by God to celebrate the Passover once a year. And for a full week, they celebrate Passover. And one of the things that they do is they clean out all the yeast from their house, all their houses. They clean out all the leaven. And so uh, as, as, as part of that, because that leaven for them symbolizes the, the slavery that they had to Egypt back then. And so, so they clean all that out because they remember their freedom. They remember freedom from bondage. And that's a big deal for them. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Huge deal in the life of the children of God back then. And so then they eat unleavened bread for seven days. Now, purging the old yeast from the Corinthian church, likewise, Paul says, you've got to do it quickly. And what Paul is doing is using this, this, this idea or image of the leaven or the yeast as a symbol for the evil that's in their church, for the sin that's in their church. And he's saying, you've got to get rid of that sin. You've got to get rid of that evil. Purge it from your midst. Get rid of that man who's in your midst. All right? So, he says, just as the, the, the leaven had to be removed quickly from the Israelites' homes, we also need to quickly remove the, this uh, man from your midst. And what, what Paul is rightly concerned about is the effects that this, this uh, sin will have on the congregation that it will permeate, it will infect the entire church. Just like a rotten apple in a box of apples will eventually pollute the whole box. It spreads from one apple to another. Get rid of the old yeast, he says. Get rid of that incestuous man so that they might be what they really are, a new batch of dough. You see, back then they didn't have little packets of yeast like we have now. They just kept they just kept a, a, a little ball of dough that was, that was uh, infused with yeast. And then when they made new bread, they would, they, would, they would mix their bread dough, and then they would take that yeast dough, and they would put it into their new batch of dough. And then that would create a new batch with yeast in it. And so they, that's how they continued doing that. But if your yeast was bad, if your dough was bad that had the bad leaven, then it would infect the whole, the whole lump of dough would be, would be infected with the bad yeast. And so he's saying you've got to get rid of that bad leaven in your church because it's going to infect the whole church. Um, get rid of the sin in your church so that you can be the new creations in Christ that you really are. You see, because these Corinthians were not living out practically who they were in reality in Jesus Christ. If they are new creations in Christ, they weren't living that way. But Paul said you need to get back 
You need to do this, get rid of the sin in your church so that you can be the people that you really are. He reminds them then about Christ as their Passover lamb and how he'd been sacrificed for them in that no longer do we have to rely on a shadow, a picture of what really is to come in this Passover meal you know, that they had been eating uh, every year for a full week. Because now we get to celebrate Passover every single day because Jesus Christ's blood covers us every single day. We don't have to reenact this sacrifice every year or anything like that, but we get to celebrate it um, every day of our lives. And, and every time when we meet, we, we don't eat the Passover meal, but kind of what's taking place of it is communion. It's the Lord's Holy Supper, which, which is what Christ turned the Passover meal into. And so we get to celebrate that by partaking of that. By, by, by eating his body and drinking his blood in the, in the form of bread and wine here at the church. All right, so we no longer live our lives as we did when we were pagans, with malice and evil. But we now, as new creations in Christ, we live our lives with sincerity and with truth. In conclusion, be reminded that as Christians, we live in a glass house. The whole world sees our conduct. In word and deed, the church must exhibit an intense hatred for sin and a genuine zeal for holiness. Such holiness demands ardent love for Jesus and total obedience to his commands. Obviously, this doesn't mean that we can or that we will be perfect because we never will be on this side of eternity. We sin, all of us do, but we live by grace believing in the gospel of our Lord Jesus, that he paid for our sins on the cross. So don't despair. If you find yourself falling short this morning, if you're in Christ, you are safe in his everlasting arms. The process of church discipline happens rarely. should always be carried out in faith. Faith is displayed through prayerful, de- prayerful dependence upon the Lord to provide the wisdom and the strength that we need to love with endurance and patience, flowing from a heart of joy and thanksgiving for our God who has redeemed us by his love. 